Let's pray. Father David leads us, encouraging us to pray, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We hear our Savior praying to you that your word is truth and that you would sanctify the people of the Lord Jesus with that truth. So help us to understand it and help us to live it out. We ask these mercies in Christ's name. Amen. We're back in the book of Romans. We've seen these major sections of gospel truth. We've come to the life-changing relevance of the gospel. We're in this section now that is primarily uh, for our interaction with non-Christians. I'm not saying that there is no relevance in the life of the church that we are to say, well, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice who are unbelievers, but we don't need to do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We remember what has been given to us thus far in Romans 12. The mercies of God lead us to a body as a living sacrifice and a man mind transformed by the Holy Spirit's renewal. First in that mind being renewed is humility in the context of the church. And we're going to be coming back to this whole matter of pride and humility in verse 16. I remind you what we have seen, that pride is like bad breath. We can easily discern it in others, but we may be oblivious to it in ourselves, for pride deceives us and tricks us, and we don't know that it is there without careful examination. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think of yourself with sound thinking. That's where the renewal of the mind begins. God argues for our humility. The second aspect of the renewal of the mind is a self-denying love to the church and to the broader community. And now we want to see these verses again, verse 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. That's the, this is the baseline. This is foundational for the Christian life. And now it moves on. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Well, with that introduction, let's come to the text uh, itself and to the handout if you care to use it. First of all, Roman numeral one, loving your enemy by blessing. Loving your enemy by blessing. And we're going to begin with A, the reality of our enemies. What enemies? Well, if you're a Christian, you're going to face some level of persecution somewhere, sometime. Certainly, this would be worse if we lived in Pakistan, if we lived in China, uh, but there is nonetheless persecution that a believer will face here. I want to remind you of Matthew 10, 
verses 16 through 23, just think of the image that the Lord Jesus gives. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Is the sheep going to do much damage to a wolf? Well, no. Is a wolf going to do much damage to a sheep? Well, absolutely. And how are we to think and behave? We're to be as wise as serpents and pure and innocent like a dove, harmless as a dove. If you think of a dove, it's harmless. If you think of an eagle, it could do some damage to you. It can do some damage to a baby lamb. Well, what will these persecutors do? They will deliver you to the courts and the synagogues. They will deliver you over to death. And why do they kill believers? Well, it's because they want to. And why do they want to? Because you will be hated by all for my name's sake. What are believers to do in this face of persecution? Well, they're to take the gospel to this town. And they're to stay there and preach there until the opposition, if the opposition turns out to be negative, then they shake off their, the dust of their feet and they go on to the next town and the next town and the next town and you will not be done going through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Is that really a smart thing to do when you're facing temptation? When you know that they all will hate you on the cause of Jesus' name? And yet, nonetheless, it is from this town to the next town to the next then from Matthew 10, now verse 34. I read it earlier, but here it is. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. It's not that your enemies are going to set up a lectern in a lecture hall and they're going to stand there and say things against your belief. That, that may happen. But the picture here is not of a lectern, but of a sword. And there will be this opposition within perhaps our own homes. Bless God, there is such a thing as household hearing the word of God and household faith in the word of God, but there is also such a thing as one isolated individual in a large family believes and faces persecution, persecution for it. Loving Jesus more than any other person on the earth is his standard. And then if we simply ask that, well, you know, persecution, there's a lot of bad news here. Why can't a Christian live in such a way that the people of the world won't want to persecute them? Well, it's because the world loves darkness rather than the light. And they don't want to come to the light. And when the light is shining on their lives, it causes discomfort. 
Or as Paul says it, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Peter talks about a situation, but even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. So he's envisioning a situation where those Christians will be persecuted, not because they did something bad, but because they did something right, and it stands out, and it is opposed. Now, listen to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus says, your real problem is not when the world hates you. Your real problem is when the world loves you. Listen to it. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Well, I wonder if I have convinced you from these passages that every Christian ought to expect some form of persecution in this world. If not, let me come to the Sermon on the Mount. Let me come to the Beatitudes, the eight indispensable marks that you are a child of God. I like to think of it as an ID bracelet that's got each one of those little tokens with a word on it, and one of them is hunger and thirsting after righteousness. They will be satisfied. But the last one of the eight indispensable marks is this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you might like to argue that hungering and thirsting after righteousness is more foundational to biblical Christianity than persecution. Okay, that's fine. But this is Jesus' list that should be on every believer's wrist, the reality of persecution. Secondly, B, our not cursing our enemies, our not cursing our enemies. What Paul gives the Roman church in verse 14 is clearly an echo of the words of Jesus, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Matthew 5 and verse 43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Professor Murray, looking at this passage in Romans 12 and verse 14, says, No practical exhortation places greater demands on our spirits than to bless them that persecute us. Unbelievers are provoked to animosity against those who are God's witnesses to truth and godliness. It is the unreasonableness of this persecution that is liable to provoke resentment in the minds of believers with resentment thoughts of a vindictive retaliation. You did this to me? 
When I was simply doing good, I was simply shining gospel light, and that it was done out of love, it was, and now you're twisting everything away around and lying about what I have done? <laughs> Do not curse, but bless. Paul adds to the words of Jesus. Jesus says, bless. Paul says, don't let cursing get mixed into there. In other words, not the slightest desire for the outpouring of God's vengeance. God, I want you to bless them, but that's after you tan their backsides. No. Do you see the change that Paul is looking for? Don't be conformed to the way of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And one of the ways is that we are to be transformed in our thinking so that we are not vengeful and angry like those of the world. Do you need the help of the Holy Spirit to help you not to be fashioned after this evil age whose pattern is the taking of personal vengeance on your enemies? Do you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you stop short of desiring? Maybe you haven't even gone to the point where you set it to God. But you thought it, it sure would be nice if the hammer would fall on him or her in this life, not by cursing. Thirdly, see, our blessing our enemies twice. I didn't see it when I've read through this passage a number of times, but I see it now when I have to speak on it. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Bless them twice. I'm not saying you do it twice. I'm saying that he is telling us twice that this is what we need to do. We need to ask for God's blessing on someone. If we refrain from retaliation to our persecutors, okay, I'm not going to ask God to do this. I'm not going to do the vengeance myself. I'm just going to think about it a little bit. What might be nice to hear happen to him or her? No. Can't curse. Can't ask God to do it. And there's got to be this positive state where I am actually asking God I pray for them. I intercede for them, at least on occasion, and say, Oh, God, don't let them go to the grave with this on their hands, this on their heads. Help them to see that this needs to be addressed. And what right does Paul have to tell you and me to behave this way? I, I, you know, you going to listen to him? This is a high standard. What does he know about persecution? 
1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's all right. I know what I've got in heaven coming, and that gives me a foundation to be positive and ministering to others. John Calvin lived in a day of open persecution, widespread killing of Christians. Notice his insights as he comes to address this verse. I have said that this blessing of our persecutors is more difficult than to let go of revenge. For though some restrain their hands and are not led away by the passion of doing harm, they yet wish that some calamity or loss would in some way happen to their enemies, and even when they are so calm that they wish no evil, no calamity, there is yet hardly one in a hundred who wishes well to him from whom he has received an injury. No, most men daringly break out into calls for God to harm one's enemies, but God, by his word, not only restrains our hands but from doing evil, but also subdues the bitter feelings within. And not only so, but he would have us to be solicitous for the well-being of those who unjustly trouble us and seek our destruction. There's one in a hundred that is able to make it all the way through this verse. Well, I wonder which one of us it is here. Hopefully many of us. Hopefully many of you. This is hard for me. And I want to give a word of balance here. We have persecutors. And the word of balance is that Jesus and Paul are talking about matters of our own individual experience and matters of not allowing ourselves to get carried away in personal revenge. The word of balance is that the power of the civil government that does not have the sword in vain, that power of the civil government in Romans 13.1 is six verses away. Don't forget that. This is talking about personal vindication. I am not saying that as a group we should allow our families to be slaughtered without doing anything but praying for our enemies. No. Abraham called his fellow lords Mamre, Aner, and Eshkol and he went on a military mission 
with his 318 trained men born in his house, along with all the men of his allies, and he defeated the invading, plundering, and kidnapping army from the east. Paul and Jesus are dealing with our personal response to personal injury. Murray, he gives two lines of thought here. Nothing less than the pattern of God's own loving kindness to sinful man is the norm for us. You see what he's saying? If you're going to follow through and experience, if you're going to live out this verse, then you're going to need to become more like God. More like the God who has the sun to shine on the evil and on the good. The God who very generously gives the rain on the evil and on the good. And Jesus holds the example out of his father in Matthew 5, and then he goes on to apply it. See how you are to be like your father. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And on it goes. We need to be like God the Father. The second application. Only the resources of omnipotent grace in Christ Jesus are able to meet God's standard for us. If, if you've been really, really hurt, and if you've been really, really angry for any length of time on someone who has done this stuff to you or someone close to you, you, you don't just, well, shake it off. You know, like shaking off a claw that got a hold of you. We need omnipotent grace. We need the Holy Spirit to work his fruit into us. Don't you need the help of the Spirit of God to give you self-control so that you will hold your tongue in a difficult situation? Don't you need the help of the Holy Spirit with the peace that passes comprehension in a situation where though everything is horrible and messy, you have peace because you know God is in control? Don't you need God, the Holy Spirit, to work in you the fruit of patience as you're bearing up under this trial? Don't you need God, the Holy Spirit, to work in you agape love towards your persecutor? so that you can actually view him or her with a measure of pity? Loving enemies by blessing. Roman numeral two. Loving your friend in his or her extreme. I'm saying friend because maybe it's believers. Maybe it's your neighbor out there in the world. Maybe it's best for us to view it applied to both. First of all, A, our sympathizing with our friends in wonderful circumstances. What is the tendency of a naturally selfish man or woman 
when they see their fellow, their friend, to get a brand new luxury car, to get a brand new luxury home, to get a new wife, to get what, or this wonderful job contract? What's the native response? I know there's no native selfishness in you, but try to imagine how a selfish person might think. Paul tells us, in our unconverted days, we were passing our days in malice and envy. Romans 1, covetousness, malice, right there together. I want what they have. And I don't really like them because they have it. And we might think that it is easy to rejoice at another's great blessing. And it is easy to rejoice if you're at a block party for the eagles. And they're up big, <laughs> they just scored again. It's easy to rejoice in that kind of situation. But suppose you're driving away from the block party in your beater, and there's Cousin Louie driving away in this brand new Benz. The point of the exhortation is that we are to enter into the circumstance of our friend as if it were our own circumstance. And therefore, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. And again, why should we listen to the Apostle Paul on this? What does he know? Well, we listen to him because he practiced what he preached. Philippians chapter 4. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 1 Timothy 6, verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And what the Holy Spirit prompted the Apostle Paul to deal with here in verse 15, rejoicing with those who rejoice, is something that the Holy Spirit prompted Solomon to deal with a long time earlier. Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Proverbs 24, 19. Fret not yourself because of evildoers and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. And you see how your prayer for that individual can, can move towards pitting them? Don't be envious of them. Like all this stuff here and now, they're able to persecute, that's okay. They've got no future. Their lamp, their lamp of life is going to be put out. Our sympathizing 
with our friends in wonderful circumstances, B, are sympathizing with our friends in horrible circumstances. What if one who has annoyed you is going through something horrible? Well, you kind of deserved it. house fire, life-changing car accident, loss of a child, something lesser. Will you weep with those who weep? And again, consider the challenge of this verse. If this paragraph is talking about we as believers loving those who are on the outside Now, we're to come along and say, okay, even the person that's got this wonderful thing going on, I'm glad for you. From the heart, I am. This person that's got something bad going on, I, I, I really feel bad. And this is a challenge to us because you... You may be like me and feel like, you know, I only got so many emotions... And if I put all my emotions into rejoicing with those who rejoice, put all my emotions into weeping with those who I'm not going to have anything left. But could it be that God's Holy Spirit can resupply that basket of our emotions? Well, he kind of deserved it. Sounds like something that I could find in my mind. But listen to Proverbs 17. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Wow. Don't you love the Proverbs? Being direct? Taking a whole bunch of truth and then putting it down in that irreducible essence? It reveals a a hateful spirit. If I'm saying, you deserved it. Well, maybe I didn't want him to be crippled for the rest of his life, but something, God. But let us know that when we are having something more of hatred in us than we are of an other-oriented love, then God is opposed to us. You and I will not go unpunished. Is there any further renewing of your mind that needs to be done? In rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep? Professor Murray, identification of ourselves with the lot of others is here again commended. Weeping means sorrow, pain, grief of heart. It is not pleasant to weep. No one invites grief. But our love for others will constrain in us the sorrow of heart which the providence of God meets out to our brethren in Christ. God brought this to them. I need to come in alongside of him or her and shoulder that. In these cases, we are concerned with the emotions of joy and grief and are reminded again of the significant mutability which belongs to a believer's life. 
Sometimes we are in wonderful circumstances and sometimes we are in horrible circumstances. And yet God is always on his throne. To each change, there is the appropriate reaction, and to these reactions, emotional or otherwise, fellow believers must be sensitive and not ignore the feelings of others. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Roman number one, loving your enemy by blessing. Two, loving your friend in his or her extremes. Roman numeral three, loving your friend by humble identification. Now verse 16. First of all, A, embracing a righteous universal perspective of others. There's, there's, there's four directives here in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another is the ESV. The New American Standard is less interpretive but it is be of the same mind towards one another. This kind of language is used in Romans 15, 5. Mind the same mind in you, among you. And that's talking about harmony. That's talking about unity. We all think the same thing. But this one is more particularized. It is mind the same things towards one another. It's talking about me and the way that I think of you and the way that I think of this one. Now, it is true that if I will think in a certain righteous way about this one, that one, and the other one, and they think the same righteous thing back towards me, then we're going to have unity. But the main thing in verse 16, in my judgment, is not unity, but humility. The humility that's going to produce unity. And the emphasis here in verse 16 is on humility, isn't it? Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now back to this first phrase of verse 16. When I look on another person, how am I to have this same mind as I think of this one, that one, and the other one? Well, I see one who is made in the image of God, equal in creative dignity to myself. When I look out there, I see one who is as well fallen and fallen into a bent to sin, just like me, equal and fallen depravity. And I see one who is under the gospel invitation where God commands all men everywhere to believe the gospel. And so in that sense, there's an equality to my access to redemptive privilege. And if that's the way that I'm looking at this one, that one, and the other one, I'm not seeing one who is less valuable in God's sight because my particular color of skin is lighter or it's darker. My skin color is more gray. Theirs is more bronze. They're more brown. They're more black. If I'm looking out with a righteous perspective, 
I'm not thinking that I am better because I'm smarter, because I'm better educated, because I have more hair, or because I have less hair, that I'm taller or I'm shorter, therefore I'm better. I came from money, therefore I'm better. I didn't come from money and therefore I'm better. You see, all of us have got this native bent to that pride bubbling up within us. We can take whatever we are and whatever we have and we can turn it into a reason for our head being swollen. But if I have the same mind, I'm looking out there, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That kind of puts me eye to eye with everyone in this world. So come with me secondly to be the second phrase, avoiding lofty thoughts of yourself. It is translated ESV, do not be haughty. New King James, do not set your mind on high things. Kistemacher says, do not lift up your eyes to what is high. That is, do not be haughty. That this is indeed the general sense of the passage follows from the added exhortation. Do not be conceited. Do not be wise in your own eyes. What does this mean? High things. High things. Well, when I grow up, I'm going to be a brain surgeon. When I grow up, I'm going to make a billion dollars. When I grow up, I'm going to be one who travels to Mars. When I grow up, I'm going to be the MVP of a baseball World Series. I'm going to be the best female soccer player on the planet. It's not that we're not to have goals. It's not that we're to have no sense of direction. But we need something of the humility that says with Solomon, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. I can't just naively say, I'm going to be whatever I want to be. God might have something to say to that. We need to say that I know God rules in all the matters of my life because the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. One has written this phrase, do not be high-minded, is directed against the high-mindedness of vain ambition and the grasping for position and honor. Again, the believer is not to be conformed to the thinking of this age. There will be this spirit-assisted transforming of our remaining pride. Thirdly, C, embracing righteous perspectives of others, avoiding lofty thoughts, Thirdly, see, embracing lowly friends as a lowly friend. And the reason why I've got that worded as it is, 
is because the King James comes along at this point and says, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. It's like it gives me an out. It says that, you know, I may regard me as this high person, but I need to reach down to those who are the little people, the lesser people. But at the same time, I'm entertaining that as I get down on their level, that I am condescending. Well, there's nothing about condescend in the verb here. It is to go along with. So associate. So embracing lowly friends as a lowly friend. This, the, the second phrase of verse 16 said, high things... And this one's got lowly, but there's a question. Are we talking about lowly things or are we talking about lowly people? Professor Murray leans to lowly things. And then it's saying to the Christian, you're not to set your mind on high things, but you should be willing to take on the lowest and the most humble tasks. I think it may be pointing in the direction, though, of lowly people. If, if, not high things, but identify with the people of God. Identify with those that are down and out. In the same way that Jesus would speak to the wealthy man and advise him that uh, he should not be asking to his home those who are his friends, those who are his family, those who are wealthy, and that will be able to repay him, but he is to invite those who are lame, uh, those who are impoverished. So the only way that that man's going to get repaid for the good that he does is in the life to come. Jesus made it plain that we are not to live with a class distinction in our minds. You invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And James also makes it plain that we are not to allow a class distinction within the church. Remember what James says about that rather graphically? James 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and nice clothes comes into your assembly and you say, sit here in the place of honor. And then there comes in a poor man and you say, to, well, we really don't have any chairs for you, but you can sit over here at my feet. Well, when I stretch my feet out, I expect you to move over a little bit. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Then finally, fourthly, D. Avoiding being wise in your own eyes. Never be wise in your own sight. Paul is urging the same advice as Solomon did long before Paul. Proverbs 3 and verse 7 do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Lenski writes, 
Here Paul touches at the root of unbelieving ambition. In his own mind, the ambitious man, because he thinks himself extremely sharp, no longer thinks the same things for others as for himself. But he wants the high things for himself, no matter what his brethren get, and lets his lowly brethren, who would not be able to advance him, move along by themselves, he considering himself out of their class. Murray. Apparently, the conceit in view is that self-sufficiency by which our own judgment is so highly esteemed that we will not have regard to the wisdom that comes from another source. It strikes at the opinionated person who has no regard for anyone else's judgment. The opinionated person is intractable. What does that mean, Professor Murray? Well, it means stubborn and impervious. Water won't go through sealed concrete. It's impervious to the rainwater. It's a person that is not capable of being affected to any advice but his own. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Paul I don't know why you're doing this. Maybe you've forgotten. But it was just back there in verse 3 that you dealt with pride and then you showed us why we should be humble in the context of the church and talking of our gifts and talking how we use our, our gifts. Uh, have you forgotten? You already dealt with it in verse 3. Why are you dealing with pride again in verse 16? If Paul were here and we could ask him, what do you think he would say? Because I think you need it. And the Spirit of God evidently thinks we as believers in the church need it in every generation. Our time is almost gone. I want to close with this Proverbs 3. If you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, with the language of Proverbs 3, I want to invite you to bow before the eternal authority of Jesus Christ. And here's why. You have a never-dying soul. And you need to protect, you need to plan concerning that never-dying soul. And so I urge you, in the language of Solomon, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Don't think that the good things that you have done in life are going to be good enough to get you into heaven, but you trust the Lord, the Lord who says you believe on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. He is a good God. If you will trust in him, if you give your whole life to him, your whole life will be marked by spiritual blessing, and in the end, you've got eternity with God. 
Here is the great appeal for your life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Your trusting in the Lord will also involve you reverencing His name. It will cause you to see that if you're not going to be wise in your own eyes, you're going to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It's not something that you can make a decision in your mind to follow the Lord, and yet it's not going to impact all of your life. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and know that he will give you eternal salvation if you will but bring your sins to the foot of the cross. He will give you his perfect righteousness and you will be set for this life and the eternal life to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this string of commands. We've become used to the carefully reasoned argument of the Apostle Paul as he moved through justification and sanctification, the international defense of the gospel. And here we are, and Paul is telling us, now because of all those mercies of God, because of all that God has done for you, this is what you need to do. Father, thank you for the balance of your word. And we pray that indeed you would help us to hear it. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.